grace. We thank you, God, for this opportunity to fellowship and to praise and lift up your name. We pray that you would be greatly in our midst today, that our hearts would be receptive to your word. Bless our speaker. Anoint him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Thank you, Claude. Um, well, as you can tell, I'm not Brent. If you've been, if you're, it's your first time today, you probably went on the website and saw our attractive-looking preacher. I ain't him. Please don't judge our church based on today's performance. It's just a sampling of what happens when Brent goes out of town and they ask one of the regular guys to get up and try. But uh, he will be back next Sunday we plan on. He's there for a wedding for some folks from our church, so we'll be gl- we're glad to have him back um, next week. Um, so I am one of the regular folks. I'm asked to get up today and, uh, and speak to you, and I'm really excited to do that. I don't know if you guys have been watching the news lately, but... Um, You've heard about the big Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Uh, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about some people that have been in the news. Kent Brantley is, um, Kent and Amber Brantley uh, have two kids. They moved to Liberia uh, a few years, well, not that long ago, because they believe that God called them to serve him at the ELWA hospital there. And um, on Friday, uh, they, so Kent's one of the guys that came down with the Ebola virus while he was treating people for Ebola. He was he got sick with Ebola and was recently evacuated uh, to Atlanta, where he's being cared for in a state-of-the-art hospital. They're trying experimental drugs that have never been tested on humans before, and he seems to be responding to those, but they're waiting to see. Um, but he released a statement on Friday to the press, and he said, one thing I have learned is that Following God often leads us to unexpected places. When Ebola spread into Liberia, my usual hospital work turned more and more toward treating the increasing number of Ebola patients. I held the hands of countless individuals as this terrible disease took their lives away from them. I witnessed the horror firsthand, and I can still remember every face and name. When I started feeling ill on that Wednesday morning, I immediately isolated myself until the test confirmed my diagnosis three days later. When the result was positive, I remember a deep sense of peace that was beyond all understanding. God was reminding me of what he had taught me years ago, that he will give me everything I need to be faithful to him. Now it is two weeks later, and I am in a totally different setting. My focus, however, remains the same, to follow God. As you continue to pray for Nancy and me, yes, please pray for our recovery. More importantly, pray that we would be faithful to God's call on our lives in these new circumstances. Um, Nancy Wrightbull was a co-worker of his. She was also working there and um, came down with Ebola. And then uh, her organization called SIM, which stands for Serving in Mission, a Christian uh, mission organization, released this statement. Nancy Wrightbull and her husband David joined SIM in 2013 after 14 years of ministering to orphans and vulnerable children in another African nation, God led them to serve with SIM in Monrovia, Liberia. Following the Ebola outbreak in March 2014, ELWA Hospital in Monrovia assumed the role of Monrovia's Ebola Consolidated Case Management Center. Nancy volunteered as a member of the joint SIM Samaritan's Purse Crisis Team. 
Nancy's role included disinfecting doctors and nurses working with Ebola patients. She performed her duties in cooperation with standards presented by the Centers for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, the Liberia Ministry of Health, and other global health authorities. On July 25th, Nancy was diagnosed with the Ebola virus. Nancy and David turned down the opportunity to evacuate when Ebola struck Liberia, said North Carolina Congressman Robert Pittinger in the 30th of July meeting of Congress. They could have chosen an easy route. Instead, they chose a higher calling of sacrificial love and service. Now, a lot of this in the news with the two Americans getting Ebola as well as you know, thousand, over a thousand Africans getting Ebola now. Um, folks have been saying in the news, you know, there's lots of people on our, we have all these 24 hour news channels now that are all com- competing. There's not that much news. So they have, you know, four hours of news a day and 20 hours of people talking about that four hours and saying dumb things. So some of the dumb things, in my opinion, that are being said revolve around why would these two intelligent, educated, people who could have done anything with their lives that they wanted to, why would they choose to go to Liberia and work among the poorest of the poor? And then when the Ebola outbreak happened, why would they stay? They could have evacuated. Why would they stay? It's, it's stupid. And people have been saying this. Um, and you know what? That's, there's a legitimate question there. Why would someone who had whatever they wanted in life, could do anything they wanted, every door was open, why would they choose of all places to go to a forgotten part of the world to work among people who don't matter and then to risk their lives with a horrible disease when they could have left. Why would they do that? That's a legitimate question. We need, we need to come up with an answer for that question. So James 2 verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. One of the things that, in the, if you ever read the message version of the Bible, which is a paraphrase, it's not literal, it kind of tries to put Bible stuff into modern language, it says, Faith and works, if you separate them, it's like separating someone's body. You get a corpse. Faith that works is dead because they're so closely intertwined that if you separate them, you're killing something that was alive. Um, So there was a young woman in Albania named Anjez Bozadju, and she grew up hearing stories about missionaries who had gone to the Bengal region of India, which is kind of east-central India. She was a devout Christian, had been brought up in a Christian home, and when she was 12 years old, she decided that she wanted to go overseas as a missionary. When she was 18, she joined a religious order, and this order believed uh, that women who were going to be missionaries should not necessarily go sit and meditate for the rest of their life, but they should go out and serve people in communities. So she uh, traveled from where she lived in Albania to Ireland and learned English. And then she went to India, where she got to work in Bengal, in Calcutta, the city of Calcutta. There was a school there where she was a teacher. And then every, every year, she would leave Calcutta in the hottest month of the year, and she would go up into the hills to this convent where she would ha- have a little retreat, a break, a vacation, 
up where it was cool, and then she would return to the hot streets of Calcutta to this school, and she would teach. And one year, while she was traveling up to the retreat, she uh, was pondering. She had really been concerned over the last few years with what she was seeing in Calcutta. There were people who were poor, homeless. She was seeing street children who were orphans. There had been Hindu and Muslim violence in the city with riots surrounding uh, the last couple of decades of India's uh, British rule, there was a lot of rivalry between Hindus and Muslims and who was going to be in control of which regions. And so there would be riots and Hindus would go kill Muslims. And then another riot would happen the next day where Muslims would go h- kill Hindus. And this was leaving people widowed and it was leaving kids orphaned and they would be become destitute. And so she was concerned about them. There were lepers living in the streets that were homeless and they would beg for a living and they were outcast from society and she was really concerned with what she was seeing. And she would go from her, where she was living, her simple house, to the school to teach every day. And she would see this in the streets. And then she would leave once a year and go up into the hills to this comfortable convent where life was simple, but it was, it was comfortable. And she, on one of these trips up into the hills, she started praying about this. And she said she felt that God was pushing her to leave behind comfort and to go out into the streets and work among these least loved, outcast, poorest of the poor people among them. Not just to go out every day as a, a job and go home, but to actually go live among those people and minister to them. Now when she had become a nun, she had chosen a new name, Teresa. And when she, um, when she started this new organization, she became Mother Teresa. Now, she was homeless at first, for about the first year. She was homeless, and she would go from house to house of people that she had known when she was ministering in the school, and she would beg, and they would give her food, and she would sometimes get a place to sleep at night. And she really started to identify very closely with the people that she was ministering to because she was living the same lifestyle they were living. And after about a year, uh, some other women came and joined her, and they began working together. And they started building slowly from scratch this new organization called the Sisters of Charity, the Missionaries of Charity. And um, she said that her mission, what she said in her own words, her mission was to care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. When she died at the age of 87 years old, Mother Teresa's uh, organization had grown to more than 4,000 women running orphanages, AIDS hospices, charity centers around the world, caring for refugees, the blind, disabled, aged, alcoholics, the poor, homeless, victims of floods, epidemics, famine, and war. Why? Why did she do this? Well, when she was homeless, that first year she kept a diary her whole life. And that first year when she was homeless and she was begging and she was attempting to do something radical to follow God's will in her life, she wrote, of free choice, my God, and out of love for you, I desire to remain and do whatever be your holy will in my regard. That was her meditation while she was living on the streets. Why would someone do that? I mean, she left a comfortable home. She went overseas and then she decided Her ministry wasn't enough. She was helping people. She was serving people, but she felt this extra burden, and she left that behind to do something more radical, more crazy, 
and was very deeply criticized in her lifetime. Even though she was given lots of praise, she got the Nobel Prize for peace and all that, she was also criticized because people said, look, you're wasting your energy. You're trying to change the world. You're trying to help people. But no matter how many people you help, there will always be someone else to help. And you'll never get it done. You'll never solve poverty. You'll never solve sickness. You'll never solve violence. So really, you're just throwing your little offerings into the abyss. And they don't make any difference. Um, Another woman who's a little bit less famous, Gladys Aylward, was one of my kind of heroes of the faith when I was in college and I read her biography. She was a young woman in London and she wanted to go overseas as a missionary and she had grown up in a church where they talked about all these missionaries that were going to China at the time to join the China Inland Mission and that was a mission organization that was sending missionaries not just to the coastlines where there were large communities that were interacting with foreigners quite a bit because of shipping and trade but they were actually going into the interior parts of these countries where there really weren't any foreigners. And they were going in with the gospel, and they were going village to village and person to person, and they were sharing the good news of Jesus, and they were opening schools, and they were doing medical care, and they were doing orphanages. Whatever was needed, they would provide it. And then they would get a platform. Because they were providing for people's needs, they would get a platform to talk about why they were there and what was their motivation about Jesus. So while she was working as a housemaid, she applied to go overseas with this uh, group called China Inland Mission, but she was turned down because they felt like she didn't have enough education, and by the time she had applied, she was too old to learn the language effectively. They felt like she would just was basically she was an adult now, she was too set in her ways, she wouldn't be able to learn the language. So they turned her down. So she took her life savings and booked a train ticket to China by herself, and it went across Siberia, and the train broke down in Siberia, so she got off the train and walked to China. And when she got there, she got to a town called Yangqing, and she began working with a veteran missionary who she met there, and they started a traveler's inn and a children's home and began to help anyone who was coming through town could stay at the inn, and they would be clothed, and they would have food, and they could pay a little bit, and then they would, while they were there, they would hear a message about Jesus every night. And then the, the money that they paid would go to meet expenses and also go to provide for these kids in the community that were being cared for as well. And uh, while she was there, uh, the government of China uh, decided to outlaw foot binding, which is an old practice in ancient China that had continued into the 20th century, where women, when they were young girls, their feet would be broken and bound with tight cloth, and they would stay that way the rest of their life. And so they felt like it was a... It was a good thing to do. It was pretty to have small feet. And so women would do this, and they would. it was sort of a normal thing, considered very normal. And then um, they decided, the government, though, that this was basically oppressing women to force them to do this, and then they would be hobbled, essentially, physically unable to go very far from home for the rest of their lives after this happened. And so as they came into the 20th century and they were getting a lot of Uh, new ideas, they decided not to do that anymore. So the government outlawed foot binding, and they found the only woman in the region who didn't have bound feet was Gladys Aylward. And so they gave her the commission to go to every village in her region and unbind the feet of the women who were there being oppressed and to educate them about what it means to be an equal to men and what it means, the, the new rules from the government 
And then she used the opportunity as she went village to village and met with every village leader and all women of every village to about, about these new laws. She also used the opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus, with every single person that she met as she went village to village. And then over the course of her lifetime, she ended up taking in lots of orphans where she lived, and she actually adopted a few of them as her own children, and the rest she was caring for. And then the Japanese Imperial Army invaded China uh, right before the U.S. got involved in World War II. A few years before that, Japan was invading China and taking over, and there were all these rumors and stories about what was going to happen if you were a foreigner, if you had been hanging out with foreigners, you were going to be uh, get an extra bad time, essentially. So she ended up taking 100 orphans, over 100 orphans, crossing the mountains on foot to get them to safety uh, away from the Japanese uh, forces, away from the front lines, and led them all to freedom. And then uh, she had to leave China during the war. After World War II was over, she couldn't go back to China because the communist government was in charge by that time, and they didn't want any foreign missionaries. So she settled in Taiwan, started an orphanage, and for the next uh, 25 years, ran the orphanage until she died. And in Chinese, they gave her a new name. It was, it's pretty common in China. If you're a foreigner and you live there, we'll try to find a new name for you that kind of sounds like your original name, but it's a Chinese name, so that way people there can pronounce it. Uh, but her name in China was Ai Wei De, which is a Chinese approximation of L-word, and it means virtuous one. And so people would come to her house and they would say, virtuous one, there's a new child that we found in the street that needs your help. And for the rest of her life, that was what her name was. And um, she made a huge impact on people. She's not famous. She didn't win the Nobel Prize. They did make a movie about her called The End of Sixth Happiness with Ingrid Bergman. Almost nothing in the film was actually accurate, but it's about her. Um, So if you want to find out what she didn't do, you can watch that movie. Um, But she's one of my heroes in the faith because she took it upon herself. She had this deep, abiding passion for going overseas and doing something significant for God. And when people told her no, she said, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to do this. This is who I am. I'm not going to say no to who I am. And she went and she did it. And she made a humongous impact. And God worked through her over the course of decades to impact thousands of people for the gospel, for freedom, um, and in every way that she had a positive impact. And I think that This is part of what James is talking about. Faith without works is dead. If you remove faith and works, you get a corpse because those things go together. That's part of life. There's actually some people, some scholars even, say that when they read the New Testament, it seems like Paul is talking about faith and how important faith is and how works is not part of faith. And then you read James. So Paul wrote... Uh, a whole bunch of the New Testament, in case you're not familiar with them. So Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, for Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. I memorized those when I was like in fourth grade, sorry. Um, but he wrote all those. And then James wrote James. And um, you read all of Paul's letters that he wrote to all these Christians around the world. And you read James's letter, which he wrote to Christians around the world. And it was distributed widely. And it seems like Paul is saying one thing and James is saying another, and they don't agree with each other. Some people think that. But if you read closer, you'll find that Paul is dealing with one controversy. And the controversy that Paul was dealing with were people that were showing up at churches and they were saying, look, if you want to worship Jesus, you should. But before you can worship him and before you can be part of God's family, before you can be adopted, before you can be saved, you must 
become a Jewish person. You have to convert to Judaism first. You know, you have to eat kosher food. You have to wear these certain clothes. You have to grow out your beards if you're a man, not if you're a woman. Um, You grow out your beard. You wear tassels. You know, you, you get all this stuff right first. Then, and only then, may you start following Jesus and may Jesus' grace apply to you. Jesus' grace cannot apply to you until you follow all of the law that God gave to Moses. That was the controversy that Paul was dealing with over and over again in all these churches. Whoopsie. Man, it's crazy up here. I feel like Steven Tyler. He's a musician. Um, so anyway, um, he's saying, look, that's not true. God's grace through Jesus applies to you because you trust God, not because you follow the law. And that was his answer, and he explained it over and over and over again to people. And so you read Paul's writings, and you'll find that. If you read James, James is dealing with a different issue. James is dealing with people who said, I trust Jesus, now I can sit back and relax. I have faith, I'm saved, therefore I don't have to do anything anymore. The law is no longer anything I want to think about. Uh, My lifestyle is my business because I have faith in Jesus, so you can just leave me alone. And that's the, the thing Paul, uh, that James is dealing with. And so he's coming in and saying, look, you cannot separate faith and works. Yeah, does faith, is faith the basis of why you're saved? Yeah, that's what God wants. Is he, wants he says, I give you free grace. I give you forgiveness. All I want in return is your trust, faith. But faith without works, James is saying, is dead. You can't separate those two things. So they're not disagreeing with each other. They're in agreement. They're just coming at it from two different angles. Uh, James 2, verse 18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead." Um, So Abraham and Rahab are two famous stories from the Old Testament. Abraham is the father of three faiths. Man, these cords, I tell you what. I think Brent must be really light on his feet. You put a fat guy up here, he's going to have trouble. Um, Okay, so there we go. Um, But Abraham, the father of many faiths, many generations, many peoples, and he was having trouble trusting God on that because he was old and he hadn't had a kid yet. And so God said, look, I'm going to give you a son. And so lots of controversies, lots of stories come out of that. If you read the book of Genesis, eventually he had his son. And then God, he was like so happy that finally he had his son, his one son that was going to be this fa- another father of many generations, many nations. And God said, take him up to the mountain and kill him. Take your only son. And kill him for me. And it says that Abraham got up the next morning and took his son Isaac and he 
his son uh, by this time was probably an older teenager and he got his wood and he got a, you know his torch and he went up to the mountain and um and then when he got to the top of the mountain Isaac laid down and Abraham got the knife up to kill him and God said stop here's a ram make that ram my sacrifice and go on your way and they praised God and it says that was Abraham's work. Now, God put Abraham through that. God wasn't like, you know, maybe not. Go ahead and don't kill him. God knew what he was doing. He wanted Abraham to learn a lesson. And so he put him through that. But Abraham responded with a work that showed how much he trusted God. And in the same way, Rahab was a prostitute living in Jericho. And as the people of Israel were entering into the promised land, um, she heard about all these stories about this this people called the Israelites that were wandering in the desert for 40 years. And they kept having these battles, and they kept winning. And every really bad warlord would get out there with his army, and he would say, you know, we're the worshipers of Molech, and we've made our sacrifices, and Molech is a a better god than your god, and we're we're stronger than you are, and so we're going to win, and they would lose. The Israelites would win every time. And the people were coming back and saying, look, basically the Israelites are going to come in here and they're going to take over. And either we can fight them if we think our God is stronger than theirs, or we can give up and we can join them. And so the people of Jericho, the leaders said, we're going to fight them. We think our walls are bigger, they're taller, they're stronger, our God is stronger than their God. And so we're, and we've been here for a long time. We're not going to just join them because they say that their God is bigger and the creator and all that jazz. And then... Rahab, though, she had her doubts. And when some, some Israelite men came in to spy out the city and see what was, how thick the walls were and so forth, she hid them. And she said, when you come and you conquer us, remember that I did this for you. She had absolute faith that no matter how amazing Jericho was, that the God of the Israelites that she'd been hearing about her whole life as they wandered the desert just a few miles away, that that God was going to come over and conquer her people. And so she said, when you do, remember that I acted in faith to that God. And Rahab became one of the ancestors of Jesus. He, she was his great, 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 great grandmother. And so Abraham and Rahab were people who, yes, they trusted, but they showed their trust through their actions. Um, so what does faith look like? Why, what is the answer to this question of uh, these, these doctors who got Ebola and these people who went overseas and served the poorest of the poor in a forgotten area of the world. What, why do they do that? The answer is because they had faith. Um, it looks different from the world's definition of what faith is. I mean, we hear a lot of times, my faith got me through it. Have you guys heard that? My faith got me through it. Have you guys said that? I went through a tough thing. I was sick. I was in, in trouble. I had financial difficulty. Whatever it was, you're talking about it and you say, but my faith got me through. Now, that's true. But have we said, my faith pushed me out? My faith pulled me somewhere I would never have gone. That's a, that's a kind of a new level, I feel like. Because a lot of us are saying, my faith got me through something difficult for me. But few of us say, my faith pushed me into something difficult for me. And good for others. Um, James 2.1 says, 
My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And in uh, the next few verses talk about if a rich man comes in and you treat him well, and a poor man comes in and you treat him badly, that's bad. That's partiality. And then in James 2, 8 through 13, it says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Um, I think James is using a bit of humor in this passage. Adultery and murder are both against the law. If you're out murdering people and they say, hey, don't do that, you can't say, I'm not sleeping around. I mean, it doesn't work. Oh, well, go ahead, I guess. You know, that doesn't work that way. If you're a transgressor of the law, you're a transgressor of it. Whichever point you've chosen to be the one thing that you're like, I don't do that, it's still bad. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've been saved by his blood and you Expect eternal life with him forever, which is what anybody who trusts God can expect. But you're saying, I'm not going to serve those people, but I'm not going to have an attitude of that towards those people. I'm not going to. I mean, if whatever it is you're doing, if you're picking and choosing, you're wrong. Now you're forgiven, but God expects you to keep going forward in your faith. Our eternal life with God starts right now. And it's going to be an experience of growing in him and growing deeper in him and getting more mature in him for the rest of eternity. And it begins now. I think a lot of Christians that I've met, and I was one of these people uh, back in the day, were saying, like, when I die and I'm in heaven with God, then it'll all be different. And it will. But God expects our eternal life to begin now, which means that the new values the new way of thinking, the new level and depth of faith begin now. And it continues into eternity. And our relationship with God on the other side of death is just going to be another click up the chain, another level on the ladder, another, another level of knowledge. But it doesn't start there, it starts now. And so wherever you are right now with God, with your faith, he wants to push you into something new. He wants to take you to a new place. He wants to have your faith deepen and broaden, and he wants it to be seen in the way that you treat other people. And one of the reasons that Karen and I started going to U City Family Church and became part of this church is because we deeply wanted a diverse church. That was one of our passions. We had been overseas. We had seen what it looks like when you're worshiping with people who are not like you. That's an incredibly important thing. And we we read the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation has this amazing scene in it, the throne room of God where people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people group are gathered together in front of one throne, and they're singing one song. And the song is in every language of every human being is represented in this one song, but they're all singing it together, the same tune. They're praising God for their salvation. And we got tastes of that 
little tastes of that when we went around the world and worshiped with people in India and in China and in Jamaica and in Bulgaria where we were were privileged to be there and we were singing the same song in a different language and we deeply wanted that when we moved to St. Louis and so we ended up googling church diverse U City and we found U City Family Church and I'm deeply happy that we are among people that are not like us but what is our attitude towards outsiders. I want you to imagine if somebody walked in, what would it take? How different would they have to be for you to go, ooh, I don't know about that person. I don't know if they should be here. I don't know how I would act towards that person. If, I mean, I hope they don't sit by me. How different would they have to be? Where is that threshold for you? And know that if there's a threshold, that God wants to destroy it. He wants to blow open the doors and bring everybody in. And your attitude towards people who are different from you, however different they have to be to get that attitude, that attitude may be keeping people away from Jesus. Maybe. And God wants to take you to the next level. And he does not want you to show partiality. You know, there's a story that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. Simple story. But this guy said, look, I know the Bible says to love my neighbor. Who's my neighbor? I mean, I want to know because I don't want to treat everybody with love. I want to figure out who's in and who's out. And God and Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. A guy gets beat up. He's left for dead. They rob him of everything. And the only person who helped him was somebody who was completely different. These days, the story would be about an Israeli and a Palestinian. That would be the story. An Israeli politician got beat up and a Palestinian freedom fighter came by. And it would blow people's minds, the idea that this could even be possible, that this person that could ever help that person would never happen in real life. But Jesus said, in the kingdom of God, that's how it is. In the kingdom of God, our values change. Our point of view changes. As we grow in Christ, as we grow in faith, our behavior will reflect the depth of our faith. And it's not going to simply be we get through tough times, although that's very important. It's going to also be the depth of our love that we show to people, the kinds of people that we show love to are going to radically change as we get to know Jesus. One of the bloggers who was writing, uh, I read this on Monday, about the Ebola uh, cases with these uh, Christian missionaries. I'll close with this. So, uh, Rebecca, if you want to come up. So this guy named Corey Jones, he was writing this big, long blog article about these people that have the Ebola virus now because they were doctors. And the question is, why did they do it? And what should our response be as Christians to these kinds of people? And what he said was, the world needs people who look and live like Jesus. The world needs people who see disease, risk, and danger, not as excuses for avoiding, but as invitations for going. So here's my question for you. If you don't know Jesus, I want you to understand that if you decide to trust him even a little bitty bit, the Bible says even a mustard seed size of faith, which mustard seed, they're very small, in case you're wondering. If even that much, he will transform your life. But he's not just going to help you feel good, although you will feel better. He's not just going to solve your relationship problems, although he will help you with your relationship problems. He's not going to take over all your finances for you, although he will help you make better decisions financially. Whatever it is you're facing, he will help you in all those things. And he will gather people around you to help you in all those things. But he will also 
push you out of your comfort zone, out into the community, out into the world, to radically love the people who are unloved. That's what he's going to do. And if you're a Christian who follows Jesus, I want you to think, am I challenged? Am I pushed? Am I pulled? Or am I sitting comfortably and and was my faith for me? Or is God using it to impact the world around me? I think there are people sitting here today who are called to go overseas. And that you've been thinking about it, but you're not sure. I think there are people who are called to change jobs. I think there are people who are called to volunteer. I think there are people who need to, whatever it is, you've been kind of thinking about it. It's in the back of your mind. That's God pulling you into a new level of faith. And I think you need to pay attention to that. So my challenge and my question for you today is, will you pay attention? Will you answer God's call to a deeper level of faith that involves going out and changing the world? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for your grace, for forgiveness, for welcoming us into your family freely, for blessing us with deeper levels of faith and for challenging us all the time to grow into you. Help us to impact our world and change it for the better. Give us wisdom as we do so and help our church, U City Family Church, to really change this community and to bless the people who are outsiders. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. I'll invite the rest of the musicians up. Every Sunday as we gather, we do several things together at the end of the service. One of them is for members of our church. Uh, if you're a member of City Family Church, we invite you to come forward and give an offering. The offering is part of our worship, and it goes into the community. Uh, um, 10% of everything that the church gets goes right back out into the community. The other 90% goes to support the ministries within our church. Um, We also invite you, anybody who's a follower of Jesus is welcome to come forward and take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his followers together and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he broke bread and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my blood that is poured out for you. And he passed the cup around and had them all take a drink. And he said, as often as you gather together in the future, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we gather, we do this every week where we have... Uh, We have a gluten-free option for you if you're wanting that, as well as bread and juice that you can take to do that. And if you have a prayer request, if you have something you're struggling with, if you just have a question about our church, then please put that on your connection card and put it in the basket, and we will definitely read those. The Claude who came up here and prayed earlier is uh, the leader of this prayer team, and they go through every prayer request, and they pray for you if you've given one. So please do that. Um, I'll turn it over to the musicians now. Please stand and worship as you see fit.